let's get into it now. Acts chapter 20, and we're going to be starting at verse 22. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. This is Paul speaking. Constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would just give us eyes to see what, you are, uh, what, you, what you've placed here in Scripture for us. We recognize that everything that uh, we see in your word has been recorded and written down for us and, and speaks to us, and it's part of how you reveal yourself and outline your, your plan for us to be able to have a relationship with you. And so, Lord, we trust that as we look into, as we look into these verses tonight that there's something in it for us. There's, there's something that you, you desire to uh, bring to our attention and to teach us. And so, Lord, I pray that there would be um, in our hearts a level of surrender, a, a level of openness, a level of genuine um, interest in these things. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would lead us as we navigate through this time. I ask for myself that you would allow me to be completely surrendered to the point that I'm able to articulate only those words that you would have me communicate. Lord, as we just want to hear from you, we recognize that you are the one that instructs us, and we just want to be in every way surrendered to what you want to communicate to us, that we would know how to respond and how it would enrich our relationship with you, or in some cases, maybe even establish our relationship with you through the, through the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, now as we look into your word, be with us, teach us. In your name we pray, amen. So um, I, a number of you know that, uh, and I even mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, that I'm not an American citizen, I'm a Canadian citizen, and I gave a little bit of my story a few weeks ago. Um, but I wanted to sort of add on to that because I think it's relative to what we're looking at today. Um, as, we, as I was, I was just finding myself in a situation in ministry where um, one season had come to an end. I had stepped down from my ministry capacity at a, at a church, and I was wondering what was next, and I'll just skip forward. I just, I just felt that God was leading me into a new season of ministry and uh, that it was down here in California. So, I mean, it's always nice when you feel the Spirit leading you to California, of course. Um, and I'm sure all of us can relate because none of us were born here. But, um, but I, I really felt like that's what there was a strong compulsion in my heart that that's what God wanted for me. And, and circumstance after circumstance after circumstances, everything just was a, was a closed door. And so when the door was closed in front of me, circumstantial, I'm like, all right, fine, it's closed door. But then I, then I couldn't let go of this sense and this drive and this sense of compulsion and leading that, uh, that I was supposed to head down here, that that was what obedience was for me and that's what obedience looked like for me and that God wanted me down here. So I kept on trying, and there was different things that were going on, and um, one of the major issues was that I, I uh, because of my immigration status, that's if, I, that's if I even got a visa, which was part of the hard part, my, immigra- my immigration status wouldn't allow me to work for a wage, and so that was going to be an issue, obviously. But the immigration status, that was the real issue. And I kept applying, and I kept applying, and I kept on being denied, and back then it was INS, and they're like, no, not, not going to let you in. And... At one point in time, I, I tried again. I picked up the phone, and I called a particular border station not too far from, well, basically, it would have been on the route that I would have taken to cross over into the United States heading south. And I called that border station up directly, and like normally they have like 1-800 numbers and all that kind of stuff for all these government agencies. I just called the, that border station directly. Someone answered the phone, and he ended up spending an hour with me on the phone trying to find a loophole, not so much a loophole, but a legal way by which I could get into the United States. And this was an, an immigration um, guy, uh, officer, agent, whatever they call themselves. And uh, he spent an hour on the phone. He's like, you know, and I, he says, I think I found a way for you to be able to get in. He says, okay, so meet me at this border station on this day at this time and ask for me. My name is Kerry Whitworth. Okay. So I... 
head down to that border station at that appropriate time. I pull up to the little kiosk, and of course, the grumpy people in the kiosk always want to know what the purpose of your travel is and all that kind of stuff. And I said, you know, I just have, I'm here to meet Carrie Whitworth inside. And he kind of reacted strangely. And he, he said, Carrie Whitworth? And I said, yeah. He says, okay, well, go pull over there and then go in. So I do that. I go inside. I walk up to the counter. Same kind of reaction. I'm here to see Carrie Whitworth. And strange reaction, but okay, have a seat. Give me a minute. Uh, I'm there for about five minutes wondering what's going on and what's about to go on. Someone comes and gets me. And um, they take me through a maze of offices and cubicles and hallways. And I get to this corner office. And as I'm being led into the off- this office, I look at the door. And there's his name emblazoned on the door, Carrie Whitworth. And it said something like supervising agent. Like he was the boss of the whole place. I have no idea what he was doing answering the phone that day. <laughs> but he did. And I'm thankful that he was. Turns out the guy's a Christian. And I shared my story with him, and I'm like, look, I'm, you know, I'm just trying to like, figure all this out. I'm trying to follow God's plan for my life, and I'm in ministry and all this stuff. And he's a Christian, and he was an associate pastor at his church. So we spent 30 minutes in his office talking about Jesus while he's filling out my forms for me. And then at one point, he slides them across his desk, and he says, sign here. And I sign, and he says, legally... No, he said, technically, we only give these out for six months at a time. But legally, I can give this to you for a year. So I'm going to do that. Come back in a year, and I'll I'll reapprove it again, an extension, for another year, no questions asked. And so that's how I even got into the, the United States, and that sent me on this trajectory, and now here I am. Years later, I was in a situation where I was serving at a church in Orange County for about 10 years. And by now, I had my permanent residency status, my green card, all that kind of stuff. And um, I was there for almost 10 years. And there was a lot of transition and change that was going on. But they communicated to me, you are in our long-term plans. So stick around kind of a thing. Not long after that, there seemed to be a stirring in my spirit again of that something else is, is happening and God has other plans for me. And there was this sense that this season that I'm in, this season of ministry is coming to an end. And I had to just sort of like pray through that. And I didn't know much more about that, but I just knew that that season of ministry was coming to an end. And then fast forward, I, you know, there was all these circumstantial things that happened, and I thought, well, maybe God's opening the door here, and maybe I'm supposed to go do this. What am I, maybe I'm supposed to go do this. And they all looked like really great possibilities. Some of them were very interesting coincidences that if I hadn't prayed it through, I would have very conveniently assumed it was the Lord in the way that things had worked out. It's like, wait, this has got to be God. But it wasn't. And that ended up leading me to... Um, uh, receive an invitation to come to Los Angeles to be a part of a church in Hollywood. And the more I continued to pray that through, and that just seemed to be what the Lord was leading my wife and I to do, to move to Los Angeles. Fast forward six years. I had been going through some of the most challenging times ever in ministry, but some of the most amazing times at the same time. I loved my time at the church in Hollywood, and there was once again a stirring, and some of you know more about that story, and I won't get into it too deep. But the stirring was essentially to come and plant Collective Church with Pastor Casey. And there were so many reasons why I didn't want to do that. I was um, in, a, in a role and in a capacity at the church in Hollywood, it's called Reality LA, where I, was, I, I, felt, um, I, felt, I felt fulfilled there, I felt challenged in a, in a really good way. It was difficult, but it was an amazing time to be there, great church to be a part of. And it had all these things that I had to sort of just let go and surrender so that God could do what he wanted to do in my life. And that was to come here and plant Collective Church with Pastor Casey. And I say all that just to show you a little bit, some of the curveballs that God has thrown me over the years, and a little bit about my own personal experience of what happens when things start to happen in, a, in the more spiritual sense of when God, by His Holy Spirit, has, has led me in different directions. And I learned a long time ago to not make too many plans because you know, the, the, ne- the next curveball is going to come and something's going to change. 
But there are times in our lives, and there's been times in my life, where I've had just enough sense of what God wanted, but I didn't know exactly what the future would hold. There were times where, as he would lead me through different seasons of ministry and things going on in my life, where to, to step into a new season of life required a lot of sacrifice. Sometimes it required a lot of repentance, as I had to deal with a lot of the grossness from my own sin. And sometimes that manifested in an unwillingness to follow God and an unwillingness to obey him and, and an unwillingness, I'm getting tongue-tied here, an unwillingness to follow the Spirit's leading. So sometimes there was sacrifice, sometimes there was repentance, but almost every single time, there's always an element of, of something about the future that I, I didn't quite understand, something I didn't quite know, and or I had to just sort of lay it down and surrender that and um, just with the knowledge that the rest would have to be discovered. Now, what we're going to be examining tonight in this passage of Scripture um, is how we see the Holy Spirit working in the life of Paul and his response to that and his resolve to stay faithful to the things that God had called him to, we see a model of complete surrender in his life to how the Spirit's leading him and how the Spirit's guiding him. And all he wants to do is to be led by the Spirit and be faithful in the things that God has called him to. And so, uh, first of all, before we get into it too much, though, I want to give a little bit of context for what we see going on in this passage. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. And he has set sail, and he is now landed in Miletus, and he is called for the Ephesian elders, or the, the elders of the church in Ephesus, to make the 20-mile trip south down to, to Miletus to be able to, to meet with him. And um, so he's called the, the elders of, of that church in, in Ephesus. And I want to get into that a little bit. What, what it, who are these people? What is, it, what is an elder of a church? How are we to understand this audience that Paul is speaking to? Now, biblically speaking, the elders are those that God has appointed and commissioned to lead the church. And a more familiar modern-day term for that would be a pastor, and so, um, you know, presently, Pastor Casey and I are the only two pastors slash elders here at Collective Church. But under uh, normal circumstances, another thing that we see here is that Paul is, he is summoned and he's called not a singular leader, not a singular pastor, not a singular elder, but he's called a plurality of the elders that were in Ephesus to come down and to meet him. And we believe, biblically speaking, that under normal circumstances, churches are to be led by a plurality of pastors and a plurality of elders, and that's even part of the reason why uh, Pastor Casey and I planted the church in the way that we did. And, uh, and, that's why there's, and that's why there's two of us. And especially now that Pastor Casey has been on sabbatical, we see God's providence in that. But if we look further back beyond where we started in our text, and if you, if, but if you have it open and you glance back to verse 17, we can see that, that he's calling the, the plurality of, of those elders in. Now, Paul had, had spent about three years of his life and ministry in Ephesus, and no doubt they had a, uh, a special place in his heart. I believe he had been in Ephesus for longer than any other place that he had been. So he's got a connection with these leaders in Ephesus that maybe uh, was a more significant connection that he may have had with, from the leaders of the other churches. And Paul has gathered them together because he's making his way to Jerusalem, and he, he's under the belief that this is going to be the last time that he's going to be able to see them. So in many ways, these are Paul's final in-person words to these leaders from the church in Ephesus where he had invested so much of his time. And so that's the context, and that's the audience to whom Paul is speaking. And so we see that in the 20th chapter. There's this amazing section, which we're in the middle of now, uh, that I've always really appreciated, and these are his final words. But we're, we're starting at verse 22, and so let's get into that a little bit. Just the first part of the verse there. He says, Behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. So Paul describes himself as going to Jerusalem, and, but he wasn't just going there because he had plans to, which would not have been bad in and of themselves, but he contextualizes 
why and how and what's going on behind his trip to Jerusalem. He, he basically describes himself, no, not basically, he does describe himself as being constrained by the Spirit. And Paul uses this imagery of being bound or being tied to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so this means that somehow the Holy Spirit has put it on Paul's heart that it was the will of God that he make his way to Jerusalem. And so that's exactly what he's going to do. Paul was a man of deep devotion and deep conviction, and his own spirit was captivated by the Spirit of God to do the will of God. And so in short, to be spirit-led is to have a strong compulsion that God desires us to do something in a particular situation or circumstance. Now, we've got to be careful with this. Because sometimes we think that God is speaking to us, and all it was was the burrito that we had for lunch. And so sometimes we have these impressions or things that are going on, and we read into situations, and we've got to be careful about that, that we take the time to seek the Lord. Sometimes when, when we have the luxury of time, we, we can play devil's advocate with ourselves and sort of like really vet what we think is going on. The most important thing, though, is that we understand that the Holy Spirit will not lead us and call us to do anything outside the confines of Scripture. And that's a great protection for us. Whenever we feel like God is leading us to do something, or we feel impressed upon to do something that is outside the confines of Scripture and outside of the boundaries of Scripture, that's an obvious red flag. That's the easy part. The hard part is when it's within the confines of Scripture, and maybe there's a sense that God doesn't really give a rip which you know, one you do, A versus B. And so there's a, there's a sense sometimes where we're like, well, both of these options and both of these opportunities could represent obedience. And so we don't always know exactly how he's leading us and what he's leading us to do. But the longer we walk with God, the greater sensitivity we have to his spirit and a greater sensitivity and a greater ability we have to be able to recognize his voice and to be able to hear him when he's speaking to us. But it can definitely, if we're not careful, it can definitely um, get into a goofy situation. And we see here in our text here that there are some practical realizations and implications about being spirit-led or being completely surrendered to the spirit as Paul was. Number one, you're not in charge. And that's the reality of what we're talking about here. Paul was so surrendered to the Holy Spirit that it wasn't just about his plans. It wasn't just about what he wanted, but he truly believed and he had this pull in his heart that God wanted him, that it was God's will for him to make his way to Jerusalem. It's just the reality of what we're talking about because when we're completely surrendered to the Holy Spirit, we're, we're very literally, we're not in charge. We're not in the driver's seat anymore. It's literally one of those situations where it's like Jesus take the wheel kind of a thing. We're not in charge anymore, and we need to get with the program and stop pretending that we are in charge. Seriously, if we think about it, and if, and if I asked you, you know, um, if, we, if we were talking and, and you were sharing something about what, something that was going on in your life, and I just said to you, you know, who, who's, who's more important in, 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 in seeking direction in your life. What's more important to you, your own will or God's will? And of course, if you know Jesus and you love Jesus and you have a relationship with him, you'll give me the easy Sunday school answer with, well, what God's will is more important to me than what I think. Now, that's, that's kind of the obvious thing, but uh, sometimes we get that theologically right, but it doesn't work itself out in experience in our lives. And it's one thing to get that answer theologically right, it's a completely different thing for us to get to that point of total acceptance and total surrender where we're allowing God to do what he wants to do in our lives. So it involves us letting go. It involves us giving up control. And for some of us, and just think about this, for some of us, when we think about things like giving up control, we about have a panic attack. And it freaks us out, this idea that I'm not in control or that I'm not allowed to be in control or that I'm soon not going to be in control anymore. But that's what it involves. We're not in charge. We need to be completely surrendered to the Holy Spirit, let go, and give up control. And while he is God, 
obviously, and we're crystal clear on that, and we are not, there is an aspect where we need to allow him to work in our lives. Now, that's not because we are more powerful than he is, and it's not because he needs our permission, but the reality is, and we see this in the way that God relates to mankind, he's not the type where he typically will force himself or impose himself on us. And so when we get it right theologically and we recognize that we need to uh, be led by the Spirit and be surrendered to the Spirit, whatever the Spirit leads us and guides us to do, there is that element and aspect of that total surrender where we've allowed God to work in our life, where we're actually paying attention, where we are actually interested in hearing how the Spirit wants to work in our lives. It's been said that the Holy Spirit is a gentleman does not force himself and does not impose himself on us. My youngest daughter, Amelia Bell, she's got this thing going on where she insists on dressing herself. And she doesn't have a clue what she's doing. But as she's gotten older, she's become quite independent. And she will go into her room and she'll grab a T-shirt out of the closet And then she'll sit there on the floor and she will try to stuff both legs through the sleeve of a shirt. And she feels, you know, halfway there, when she gets one leg through, she feels very accomplished. And sometimes she'll like call to us that we'll watch her and pay attention to her and affirm her and the great job that she's doing. But then she tries to squeeze her fat little other leg through that, that sleeve and it doesn't usually work out very well. And she starts to get a little bit frustrated and then we'll say, you know, we'll say, can we, can we help you? Do you want some help? And she's like, no. And she insists on doing it by herself. And she doesn't want our help. And so we have to sort of just sort of hang out a little bit and, and just allow her to do what she wants to do until she realizes that her plans aren't going to work out. Sound familiar? That's totally us. That is totally us. And this is why preachers always talk about their kids, because they create and they give us the greatest illustrations because, uh, you know, as parents, we are to be a reflection of God to our kids, and we find ourselves in that situation often, and we look at our kids, and every parent in the room knows what I'm talking about, and you know what it's like to be able to relate to your kids, and and you're often reminded, like, wow, I'm like that with God sometimes, and we really are. We're sometimes like these little kids who refuse our help, and we have difficulty doing uh, these things that we want to do, but we refuse to let, if to follow this example, we, a few, we, like little kids, we refuse to allow our parents to help, or in this case, we refuse God's help and God's uh, desire to work in this situation. We insist on doing everything ourselves. We, we want to spend a lot of energy, even to the point of frustration, because we're stubborn and we're insistent that at some point it's going to work out and that at some point we're going to be able to do it. But like the patient parent, God waits until we let go and let him work. And I look at my daughter sometimes and I think, you know, you could have been spared a lot of time. You could have been spa- spared a lot of frustration if you had just, just surrendered and let me help you. So we have to let go. And we have difficulty doing that, and there's a couple reasons why. There's probably many reasons why, but I'll highlight a couple. It's either that we need to be in control, or we have a specific problem with him being in control. Sometimes it's, I don't care who's going to be in, who wants to be in control. I'm in control. I'm not going to let go of this. And no matter what, I'm going to retain control of this situation. And then on the other side, it's like, well, I, I, I might give this up. I might release control, but not to God. And sometimes we have issues with, with God in that, in that respect. Sometimes we have pride issues. Our pride gets in the way and keeps us from letting go and giving up control and, and, and pride and our desire for control makes us think that we can do better. That's really what it is. When we have a difficult time submitting, it's often because we think something is stupid and we think we could do it better. So I'm not going to submit to that because that is dumb and I'm smarter and I'm better. And I'll tell you, one of the biggest lessons I've learned in, 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 
in ministry has, I've learned that the hard way, where there's been times where I was unwilling to submit because essentially what I was saying is I can do it better. And you know what? There might be times where we're even in a situation like that where not in relation to God, but in relation to other things where we need to submit, where it might be true that we could actually do that thing better. But that's not the point. There are certain situations and circumstances and relationships where God calls us to submit to others in different ways and in different capacities. But as it relates to God, it should be a clear-cut thing that obviously we are to submit to him. But sometimes we have these issues that, uh, you know, because we don't, we don't trust him and we don't want to submit to him. But if we see how God has revealed himself in Scripture, we see that he has revealed himself as nothing but absolutely and totally trustworthy. And so if we still have trust issues as it relates to God, we have probably created a distorted version of who he is in our own minds. So that means that it's not God who is letting us down, but the distorted version of him that we have created. So it's not God that has let us down, We have let ourselves down by putting our faith and trust in this thing that actually doesn't really exist and is only just a distortion of who God says he is. So it's not God at all that is letting us down. And we see that Adam and Eve, this very common story that we all know about, Adam and Eve had a very distorted view of God. They allowed the serpent to redefine for them who God was, and they sought to control their own destiny. They took matters into their own hands, and as a result, sin came into the world, and we've been dealing with it ever since. So we have to let go. We have to give up control. We have to surrender. And if you're a Christian, and you've been a Christian for a while, and you're familiar with the concept of being spirit-led or surrendered completely to the spirit, I'm sure that... uh, like I mentioned earlier, there's, there's a degree to which you can theologically agree that that way is best. But as in many areas of life, theological agreement doesn't always translate into what it should. And so acceptance for us is when we are, we are seeking to uh, sort of acknowledge that we're going to accept that God is going to work in our lives in this particular way where we work out our theological understanding and work that out towards agreement, to work that out towards acceptance, towards experience. Acceptance is an act of the will, and it's going to involve our submission and our surrender at a heart level. And if we're really going to surrender, and if we're really going to allow the Spirit to lead us, it involves, I would suggest, intentional seeking, intentional inviting, asking, and discovering so that we don't just theologically uh, agree, but so that we can functionally and practically accept and submit the reality of the fact that God desires to work in our life and so that these aren't just... Uh, it's not just our theology that we believe or that we point to on a positional paper of some sort and say, this is what I believe, but it's being worked out in our lives. And it's where we realize that we can't do it on our own and we need him to help us. Now, one of the beautiful things that has come out of this season, this weird season that we're in as a church with Pastor Casey on sabbatical, one of the things that I have observed and one of the things that I have noticed in recent months is is that there is a greater awareness, there is a greater desire and desperation for the Spirit of God to do his thing in our church community. We've had moments, and if you were part of the core group back in 2000, I think it goes back to 2014. Where's, where's Chase? Was it 2014, right? Yeah. It was. Um, yeah, so it, we've seen God do some crazy things. But what I have seen God do in the last couple months through a difficult, admittedly difficult season for us, has been so comforting, so comforting and so encouraging. And it has just reminded me time and time again that Jesus is the head of the church and that we're going to see the Holy Spirit operating in power in spite of the situations that we're going through. 
Now, what I would love for us to do as a church in the ways that we gather together, or even in the ways that we live, is where there's a constant intentional looking and seeking after and discovering and asking for God by his Holy Spirit to work. And even as we gather together on Sundays, and we're just talking to the band uh, before we started, where it's like, okay, like we have our songs and we have a message prepared and all that kind of stuff, but they're, they're, let's intentionally seek for the Lord to do something. Let's really ask God to meet people tonight. Let's really look for Jesus to, to minister to us, to tra- transform and to change lives. And sometimes it goes according to our plans and according to our agenda, and sometimes it doesn't, and that's okay. But if it's of the Spirit of God, it's something that we want to submit to, and we ultimately definitely want to welcome. So we need to recognize and realize that we're not in charge. The second thing we need to realize is that there are things we don't know. We see there in verse 22, not, this is what Paul says, not knowing what will happen to me there. So he knew where he was going, but he didn't know exactly what would happen to him. And, and that's the, the next lesson for us. We don't always know where or how the Spirit is going to lead because we're not in the driver's seat anymore. We're not in the ones in charge anymore. And sometimes we can see the open, to continue on with this metaphor of the driver's seat and all that kind of stuff, sometimes we can see the open road ahead of us. Sometimes we see a way off in the distance, even, the, even our desired destination or even our ultimate destination and sometimes we like the idea of that, and sometimes we don't like the idea of that. But sometimes we can only see as far as the next bend in the road. And now we don't know what's around that curve. I ride a motorcycle, and that's the worst thing when you're riding in the canyons, which I love to do. I don't get enough opportunity to do. But when I'm going through the canyons, I have no idea what's around that corner. I don't know if there's a bunch of rocks in the road, which will call my, cause my wheels to slide out. I don't know if there's a parked car there. I don't know if there's a deer just standing there. <laughs> it's scary sometimes. And that's what happens to us. God's leading us. The Spirit is guiding us. We're like, okay, cool, I submitted, fine. All right, good. It was, oh, wait, there's a bend up in the road up ahead. And suddenly now it begins to test our resolve. And it begins to test... Um, our acceptance and our trust and our submission to him. Right before our first daughter, Jaslyn, was born, we were hunting for a place. We, we, we needed to move. And uh, I was not having a lot of success. And we were doing everything we could. We were looking online and all of that. And I even at one point resorted to creating a grid pattern. And I drove up and down every street within a particular, within neighborhoods actually, just hoping I'd be able to see a lawn sign or a sign in the window indicating that that place was for rent. And I was completely stressed out because my wife was eight months pregnant and and we needed to find a place. And um, at one point, and of course here I am, I'm doing this for my wife, right? At one point, she totally rebuked me. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm doing this for you. But she rebuked me, and she said, you of all people should know that God will provide and lead us to the right place. And I was really grumpy in that moment. But I knew she was right. I wasn't pretending she wasn't right. I was more frustrated that, that I, I, I did know better. And not even because I'm a pastor and I'm supposed to know those sorts, those sorts of things. Not because my theology is right, but because experientially I had lived it out. She knows my story and she knows the things, the curveballs and the things that have happened in my life where God over and over and over has demonstrated his faithfulness to me. And so she, she rebuked me. And she was totally right. But in that moment, it's like, oh, I know, but it doesn't make me feel any better right now. And then in the end, we found a place, and it was amazing. We lived happily ever after. (laughs) And she was right, of course. But once again, this is another situation where our theological agreement doesn't manifest, manifest in acceptance or trust or submission. But when we have our eyes set on allowing the Spirit to lead, when we are determined at the heart level to be surrendered completely to the Spirit, the details of what may or may not happen tomorrow won't matter as much. And we find that when we're completely surrendered to God, it's easier to not stress 
over the things that we so easily stress out over. And if you're a worrier, you can think of a million things that could cause problems for you. And so I'm not so much asking you to suspend your concern for the things in your life that matter that are important to you. But I'm asking you to purpose in your heart to trust in God, to remain faithful to Jesus and allow the Spirit to do His thing in your life because things like worry will rob us of our peace. Because it's not in the absence of conflict where we have all of our questions answered and know, everything, know how everything's going to turn out that we experience true peace. That's not what peace is about. True peace comes when we place our faith in the prince of peace. Another thing that worry will do is it will rob us of our freedom because it brings us into bondage of fear and doubt. And if you've ever wrestled with anything closely related to that, you know that it's true. It just completely brings us into bondage and it robs us of our freedom. And I love the comfort and the promise that we see there in Philippians chapter four. I'll read it for you so you don't have to turn there. But, it's, but this is Paul writing to the church in Philippi, a different letter that he wrote. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, which means it doesn't make any sense. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding and doesn't make any sense, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's a promise. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So when it comes to being spirit-led, when it comes to being completely surrendered to the spirit, we need to realize that number one, we're we're not in charge. Number two, there are things we don't know. And number three, that it might not be pleasant. We see that there in verse 23. He goes on to say, except that the Holy Spirit, I don't don't know what's going on, I don't know what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So he's like, I don't really know a whole lot, but what I do know kind of really sucks. (laughs) But for Paul, following his ministry calling and remaining faithful meant he he often experienced suffering. This was not new to him. So I don't know exactly what's going on here, but he's saying that the Holy Spirit is testifying to him in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await him. Puritan writer and preacher Paul Bunyan said this, better though hard, the right way to go, than wrong though easy, where the end is woe. That's kind of weird and poetic, so let me read it to you again. Better though hard, the right way to go, then wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. Sometimes the things that God wants us to do are difficult. But if it's the right thing to do, if it's the way that God is leading us, that's what matters most. That's what's important. So then the the thing that we've got to wrestle with is, are we okay with following the leading of the Holy Spirit and surrendering to the Holy Spirit into the unknown future, even if the future brings pain? Because we like the idea, right? Christians everywhere, do we want the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us? Yes! Christians everywhere, is it okay if it brings pain? We're not so sure. I have to think about that first. It's, it, it, it gets us excited to think about how God could work in our church community. But it's kind of a bummer when we think that it might not be all amazing and a smooth path. But I hope we're okay with following him, even if it brings pain, even if it brings difficulty. Because the question is not whether we will, and this is the reality of it, the question is not whether we will experience pain and hardship or disappointment or challenges or heartbreak or heartache. We already know we will. We already know that. So the question then for us is then how faithful we will remain and how much we will trust that God knows what he's doing. Acts 14, we, we got into this months ago. Through many tribulations, Acts 14, verse 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. There you have it. 
Or 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, don't think that it's weird at all. Just know that this just happens. And this is par for the course. Or some, we'd be more familiar with the phrase, that's life. That's just how, that's how it works. So then why are we so caught off guard? Could we, could we, we could be probably spared a lot of grief and a lot of heartache by, remember the, by remembering this little promise that we've been given. Because if we recognize that this is going to happen and this is just the way that it works, when that comes, even though it's going to be horrible in that moment, we don't have to be utterly devastated because we recognize this, we, we, we're able to recognize that this is not an off-script kind of ad-lib thing in life. It's just part of how it works. So when that stuff ends up happening that we don't anticipate and we don't plan for and it's not a fun time, we can go, oh, okay. I guess there's some plan in this somewhere. I guess God is using this in some way. And a few weeks ago, we looked at how God providentially works, even through weird circumstances and gross circumstances. We can trust somewhere, somehow, that God is desiring to work in these moments, that God will even use them and glorify himself in some way. Because we can have the, we can have the confidence that the things that are going on in our lives that are unpleasant still have a purpose. And when we think about some of that, the cross has to be an immediate and undeniable crisis right in front of Jesus and the disciples from their perspective, right? Well, maybe not from Jesus' perspective. The disciples didn't get it, but Jesus understood it. But if we're looking at that situation, right, this is a problem. He's about to get killed. From the disciples' perspective, it's the worst-case scenario, right? And Peter, big idiot that he is, as Jesus comes and gets... Uh, arrested, he pulls out a sword and starts trying to hack off heads. And Jesus is like, no, put away your sword unless you want to get your own head chopped off. My, my paraphrase. <laughs> but it was a problem. It was a crisis. It was the worst case scenario. And it couldn't have been anything but bad news, right? Jesus is going to get killed. How could anything good possibly come out of that situation? But if you're a believer in Jesus tonight, you're a Christian, you're a lover of Jesus, you know the answer to that question. Plenty of good came out of that. Because here's the thing, God always plays the long game. We don't. We play the short game and we freak out. But God plays the long game. So being led by the Spirit, being surrendered to the Spirit, involves the realization that we're not in charge. There are things that we don't know, things we aren't going to know. It might not be pleasant, We're not, we, we might not like it, but it would be a lot easier for us if, number four, faithfulness is what matters most. Verse 24, Paul says, I do not account my life of any value nor as, as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, do our lives have value? Yes, they do. Jesus loved us and he died for us. But what Paul is talking about here is not the value of his life, but what he valued with his life. Paul's like, this is what matters. This over here, this is what is important. And it wasn't that he had a death wish. This is, this is a man that realizes that, that, that the life he has or the life that he had had been given to him by God and that he was created to know and love God. And so this is why he could say, as he wrote to the church in Philippi, for to me to live is Christ. That's what he said. For to me to live is Christ. And this echoes the sentiment of Jesus who said for whoever, uh, in Mark chapter 8, for, who's, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Paul lived this out. And Paul wanted to do all he wanted to do was to stay faithful to Jesus, to finish the course, to finish the work that God had called him to, no matter what the cost. Remaining faithful was more important to him than anything he could gain, anything he could attain, or anything he could um, gather for himself, any kind of personal reward in his life. Just remaining faithful, that's what mattered to him. 
And how, how can he get in that spot? And when we put ourselves in that spot, it's like, okay, well, that sounds amazing, but how did he get there? Because I feel like I'm light years away from that. And I think it's rooted in the fact that he understood his identity in Christ. And this is what he said to the church in Colossae. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at that right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So our lives are hidden in Christ, and so we submit our will and our very lives to him. Now, remember who he is speaking to. Of course, this has great relevance to, to everybody, but don't forget that his audience, his very specific, immediate audience, is, are, are these el- the elders of the church there. And I find this incredibly sobering. I hope and I pray that by God's grace I can remain faithful in the things that God has entrusted to me, in the things that God has called me to, that I won't sell out, that I won't give up my integrity or drift from the things that God is calling me to. When things get hard, it's easy to start trying to take shortcuts. But that can't happen. Often when we're taking a shortcut, we're trying to circumvent something to make it easier for us. And in doing so, we're trying to minimize and even nullify, even if we're unaware of it, something that God wants to do in our life. If I had my choice, Casey would not be on sabbatical right now. And none of this would have ever happened. It has tested me to my limits in ways that you guys don't understand and you're not going to understand because you didn't live it or whatever. And I I don't mean that to diminish um, any way that this has been difficult for anybody else. I'm just speaking about my own personal circumstances. I would not have chosen this. But I'm already coming out the other side of this enriched better off, more convinced, I hope more surrendered. And I hate that it it takes difficult things for us to learn these lessons. That's just how it works. When I got my start in ministry almost 20 years ago, I was given two pieces of advice. Number one, don't be a yes man, which is I don't know. I guess that's easy for me. I'm, I'm enough of a jerk that that's, okay. that's easy for me. <laughs> don't be a yes man. Number, number, and then number two, and I don't know which one came first, the chicken or the egg. I don't know if I'm not a yes man because of this or not, but don't be a yes man, number one. And number two, always honor God and do what's right. And I took those words to heart. And um, they have been a great compass for me in ministry, and I, I still try to live by them. And um, but they've also brought their share fair of grief to my life as well. Their fair share of trouble, for sure. But whatever. But Jesus, as we consider some of the stuff, Jesus was the ultimate model of faithfulness, right? And, I, and, and I'm saying that I hope that by God's grace, I can, I, can, I can be as faithful as Paul is saying that he was and how he intends to be. But Jesus, forget Paul, Jesus was the ultimate model of faithfulness. He always did the Father's will. He always did what the Father wanted him to do. And he even submitted himself to death on a cross. Paul, again, writing the church in Philippi, he said this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus 
fully embraced and accepted the Father's will for him. This plan of salvation, the gospel being the good news that we could be brought into a relationship with God. He accepted the unpleasant. He pressed on towards the cross anyway. He did not seek out what was best for him, but he laid his life down because it was best for us. So if we're talking about someone who laid their lives down because, of what, because it was best for us and not best for them, to rewind this talk a little bit, that's the God that I'm talking about trusting. And when we have a distrust of God, yet but God reveals himself as this, those two things, one should modify the other. It wasn't best for him, but it was best for us. And if you're not a Christian, the Bible says, this is just the reality, you are not filled with the Spirit, nor do you have a real relationship with God because your sin still separates you from him. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians are any better than you or smarter than you or more, you know, better good-looking, whatever. Because we're sinners too. The difference is we have received forgiveness for our sins by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And now whether you know Jesus or not, I'm not asking you to say yes. When I'm talking about surrendering to the Spirit, when I'm talking about being Spirit-led, I'm not asking you to say yes to the good life. Because I'm not proposing that that's how it works. God has not promised us that. But I am asking you to say yes to a spirit-led and fully surrendered life. Yeah, but why would I want to do that? What's going to happen? Oh, yeah, did you already hear what we've been talking about? It involves the unknown, and sometimes it involves the unpleasant, and we don't know. But this is the life that God wants us to have because it's a life that is completely surrendered to him where he can do in and through our lives as he desires. This is where we give up control and completely surrender. We accept what we don't know and what might be unpleasant, and we remain faithful because the world is not our home. It has nothing for us, and it's only in following Jesus and truly living life led by his spirit, completely surrendered to the spirit that we can experience life as he intended it and life as he died to give us. Let's pray.